in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I labored hard to find a Bible in my library that lays flat in Genesis. If you're a preacher, you know what trouble that can be if you're constantly doing this, trying to keep it open. But I found one that I think will, I think will do. So when my wife chides me for having 40 different copies of the Scripture, I need every one of them. I need every one of them, especially if I have to preach out of Genesis or Revelation or the Concordance. I covet your prayers tonight for two reasons. Number one is there's some connections and some truths that I'm trying to get across, and it's going to be real easy for me to misspeak or mishandle it. I want to handle it just right. It's It's kind of a complicated leap, and so we just ask the Lord to help me to to handle it in the right way. The other is, in dealing with Adam and Eve, particularly this passage, on a couple of occasions we are reminded that they were naked. And I need to handle that rightly so all your kids don't come home snickering and asking questions. So I'll do my best in that regard as well. By the way, good to see Sarah tonight. For those of you that are wondering, no, she has not already quit. Uh, She came home for Labor Day and I assume is going back. I think, okay, good. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than the beast, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the trees which is in, in the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the, the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, there's, there's all kinds of things going on in those first five verses that I really want to dig into, but I'm not. I'm going to restrain myself and let you get an early start on Labor Day, okay? Um, but there's so much going on there. And if the Lord leads me, as I think he might be doing, to start a series out of the book of Genesis, then we're going to spend some time on that. Just in those five verses, we see how subtle Satan is, and we see how easily Eve bought into the narrative. Easily. By the way, all of us would have too. Okay, um, But we're going to leave that for now. Verse number 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now that's interesting. If you go to First uh, John 2, verse 16, you see that we're told that, that, that there's three roots of sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All three of them present in verse number 6. By the way, all three of them present is in the representative temptations of Jesus by Satan as well. All three of them, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. So that's a sermon there, and we'll not do that either. Verse 7 is where we want to focus, 7 through 9. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, 
Where art thou? Adam and Eve have just sinned, and now they've got to face God. And he approaches, and he asks a question. Would you permit me to dispense with King James and anglicize this a bit? It won't do any disreverences in a word. It won't be irreverent to Scripture to do this. What is God saying? He's saying, where are you? And it's a lot easier for me to say, where are you, than where art thou? Okay? It flows off my tongue a little easier, so if you permit me that. God says, where are you? God says, where are you? He didn't ask the question because he needed to know. He asked because Adam needed to know where he was. And the thing is, every time we open the Word of God, every time we spend time with God in prayer, every time we're under the influence of the preaching and teaching of God's Word, God is asking us that same question, where are you? He's asking that of us tonight. Where are you? Not because he needs to know. He already knows. We need to know where we are. We need to know where we are. And so that's the question before us tonight. Where are you? Father, would you help me now as I preach this? Lord, I really need you to move me out of the way and just take control of this thing. I know in my mind and heart what I I want to say, what I think you want me to say. I'm, I'm struggling with how to say it with my limited ability um, and, and my limited command of language. Lord, I don't want to misspeak. I don't want to trip over this. I want to give direct, great truth to folks that we can use that will help us be more like Jesus and answer this question about where are we. So help me with that, I pray. Help me also, Lord, to rightly handle subjects that could be easily um, troublesome to parents. I'm always aware and respectful of the presence of our children. So help me to handle that well as well. More than anything, may Christ be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Where are you? Number one, where are you? And you understand when I say you, I mean me too, okay? Where are you in the matter of your purity? In the matter of your purity, and specifically your purity with God. Verse number seven. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Up to this point, Adam and Eve have been in a state of complete and unadulterated innocence. Now, there are some, there are some that conject that they were actually clothed. The Bible says they were naked, true. True. But some would say that they were clothed with light. Psalm 104, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light, as with a garment. And that if these folks were made in the image of God, then they too would have been covered in light, still naked, because light is not a tangible thing, but covered in light. And, and if that's so, they're, they're, that would make sense to me. Because now their sin had brought awareness of sin. And could it be that maybe when that happened, the light that clothed them, that blinded their eyes to the fact that they were naked, that light dissipated? Maybe. 
Regardless of how it all played out, they were not wearing physical clothes, and after they sinned, they realized that they were naked. They understood that. They stepped out of their state of innocence, and now for the first time in their existence, they now wrestled with two things that they had never yet felt before. They wrestled with guilt, and they wrestled with fear. Up to this moment, they never for a moment feared God as far as being afraid of him, not respect or reverence, but as far as being afraid of him, they had no reason to. Now all of a sudden, they're dealing with this new feeling called guilt, and they're dealing with fear, and it's new to them. And can I tell you something? When we allow sin to get a foothold in our life, the first two things that enter are guilt and fear. And we step away from our place of momentary innocence. Now, I understand we're not innocent as a whole because of sin and because of our sin nature, but we have moments in our life when all is right between us and God and we're joyful and all is well, but then as soon as sin finds its way in, what happens? Guilt and fear take hold. And what has happened is, now you understand, when when we're justified, we're we're justified positionally in Christ, but we've still got to work on what's going on practically. We've still got to serve God and be right with him and, and keep things right practically speaking. When there is innocence, there is no need for something behind which to hide. For instance, little babies... We, we never, I've never once heard of or encountered a little baby having his or her diaper changed in the nursery. That in the process of that, they looked at the person and said, I beg your pardon. I am uncovered, and that's inappropriate. They don't care. They don't think anything of it. It's no less true, but they don't think anything of it. Why? Because they're innocent. They're innocent. But there comes a point in their life that they have an awareness that kicks in and they understand that it's not appropriate, that it's not right because they have started to move away from that state of innocence. And this is where I really want the Lord to help me. I want him to help me all the way through, but is there innocence within a marital relationship? Yes, within a marital relationship that God has smiled upon, that God has ordained as being fit and appropriate, is there a need to be anything between the husband and wife? No, that's how God designed it. But the second it becomes a sinful activity, then there's a problem, you see? I think we got through that one okay. The point is this, when there is sin... What was innocent, when there is sin, we instinctively shrink from God's loving gaze. We don't want him to look at us anymore. We want to hide from him. We want to cover, and we put things between us and our Savior. We realize our nakedness, and we fail to remember that it's not sin that, that, that showed that we were naked. We've always been naked before him. You can put on 15 coats and still be naked before him. He sees all there is to see about us. He sees in our hearts. He sees in our minds. God, help me. He sees everything there is about us. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You see, when we're pure in our walk with God, we don't mind him looking at us. We don't mind him seeing us. We don't mind him gazing lovingly upon us. But as soon as sin comes, no, we want to hide from him. So we ask ourselves the question, where are we in the matter of our purity before God? Number two, where are we in the matter of our potential for God? our potential for God. And the eyes were in verse 7, the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. We all, whether you realize it or not, have limitless potential for God's use. Limitless. God endows all of us with abilities that he insists be used for his glory. Every ability you have is to be used for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all, why? To the glory of God. God gives us abilities with the potential to use them for his glory. And he gave Adam and Eve one of those such abilities. Have you ever asked yourself, When they were created, what conceivable reason would Adam and Eve ever have to need to know how to sew? They're not repairing clothing or making clothing because they didn't wear clothing. Well, well, maybe they were, maybe they were, maybe they were making shelter from what? A perfect environment? Well, from the rain. It didn't rain. The only thing that I can conceive of is maybe Adam would decide one day to make a hammock. Maybe. But there really wasn't much reason for him to sow. So there's nothing in the Bible that says they were taught how to sow or that they used sowing, but they instinctively and innately knew how to sow, albeit fig leaves. Why? Because God had given them that ability. But sadly, the first time they choose to use it, they use it for something other than his glory. Now, they would sow many times after that. But this time, they used it for something other than his glory. They failed their potential in using it in an attempt to cover up their sin. So friend, in regards to your potential, the abilities that God has given you, are you using it for his glory or are you using it for your own devices and to cover things up and for things other than what would please God? Number three, where are you? Regarding your purity with God, regarding your potential for God, where are you regarding your proximity to God? Your proximity to God. And they heard the voice of the Lord God, verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
I have always imagined that just periodically God in heaven would come down and walk in the garden. Except the Bible doesn't say that. The garden was a perfect environment of his making. And there's no reason to believe that God wasn't already there. It's an environment that was worthy of his presence. And why did he make Adam and Eve? He made them that he might fellowship with them. So why then would he stay away from them? So when it says they heard they heard the uh, voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, it doesn't mean he hadn't been there. It means maybe he has been there and they just hear him coming. What does that tell me? If that's so, it tells me that they had strayed away from him. It tells me that this whole thing would have been avoided if they'd have just stayed close to God. At the very least, cried out to him. Eve could have said, God, this isn't making sense. I need you. And he'd have been right there. But instead, what do we do? We wander, and we let our proximity get farther and farther. It's very possible the devil isn't going to mess with you in here. You know why? Because where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You walk out those doors, though, and you go home and forget what you've seen in the glass the devil's waiting because when we get away from God when we when we get a broader proximity we're farther away from him the devil it's interesting the devil thrives in isolation that's why I counsel anybody that's going through a hard time our, our natural response is to get off by ourselves and lick our wounds that's the worst thing you can do because the devil works very well in isolation he's really good at it it would appear, I can't say this for sure dogmatically, but it would appear that to a degree he had even isolated Eve from Adam. And then he isolated Adam and Eve jointly from God. How far have you drifted? Where are you in the matter of your proximity to God? Listen to this. Our potential to sin is inversely proportionate to our proximity to God. What does that mean? The closer you are to God, the less likely you are to sin. But the farther you are from God, the more likely you are to sin. James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Ha ha! Resist the devil, he'll flee from me, but you better keep reading. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. That's meant to be together. It's not resist the devil or draw nigh to God. It's resist the devil as you're drawing nigh to God. See? Where are you? Where am I? In the matter of our purity with God, in the matter of our potential for God, in the matter of our proximity to God. And then finally, in the matter of, of our provision 
from God. Verse number eight again. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Why were those trees there? Now, I'm sure they were beautiful, but they weren't there for just their beauty. They were there to provide nourishment to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1.29, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree which is the fruit, in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Every tree, every plant was there for their nourishment. Now that can't be said anymore. There's certain things you don't want to eat. Point said is a pretty at Christmas. Do not eat them. Poison ivy, don't do anything with that. Don't even burn it. Do not burn poison ivy. Just poison it and let that take care of it. Can you imagine how how good things tasted in the garden? To me, there is nothing better than a fresh, juicy orange. And there is nothing worse than an old, dried-up orange. And I've had both. Every orange in the garden was perfect, y'all. And I have to believe seedless. Otherwise, how could it be eaten? They were given for their nourishment. These two took that which was purposed for provision, that which was purposed for good. And what did they use them for? To hide, to conceal their wrongdoing, to get away from God. And you know what I've learned? The vast majority of sin... It's taking things God meant for good and using them in the wrong way or at the wrong time. The vast majority of sin is taking something God meant for good and using it in the wrong way or at the wrong time. The marital relationship, God came up with that. That's God's idea. But it's to be done at a a specific time and in a specific way. And when it's not, it becomes sin, right? Sleep is good, isn't it? Some of us could use some. It's a good thing. But when we choose that to the exclusion of all else, it becomes slothfulness, right? You see how the pattern works? So what they did is they took something, these trees that God had intended for their good and for their betterment, they used them rather to conceal their sin or try to. They hid in them. And how often do we do that? How often do we take the things that God provides for us, that God means for good, and we end up using them in a way that God's not pleased with? Those fig leaves were never meant to be clothing. Still aren't. Don't waste God's love on man's lust. All right, Andy, so what? So what? Right now, God's Holy Spirit is asking this of all of us. Where are you? So I'll use myself as an example. Andy, where are you regarding your purity with me? Right now, are things right between me and you, or are you dealing with sin and guilt and fear? 
Where are you? Andy, where are you regarding your potential for me? Are you taking those things that I've given you, those abilities I've given you, and using them for me, or are you using them for yourself? Andy, where are you in, regarding your, in regards to your proximity to me? You're not as close to me as you used to be. I can't let you out this early, so I'm going to put a story in here. It reminds me of the familiar story that's used to illustrate this point. This couple is riding in this truck. It's one of those trucks that have got the bench seat. You remember those, right? Weren't those great? Bucket seats are the worst thing for marriages ever. (laughs) Bench seats were where it's at. When they first got married, oh, my soul. She's right up, wedged up underneath that guy as he's driving right where she needs to be. But over time, the gap widens. And one day they're riding down the road, and she's just over there up against the window. She's looking out the window, and he says, is something wrong? She says, nothing. Which, fellas, we know that's never true. I would rather my wife say, yes, there's something wrong than nothing. At least I can work with the something. And then I get that, well, if you don't know, then that's part of the problem. What? Finally, she starts sniffling. He goes, all right, what is going on? She goes, can't you see? When we first got married, I was just right up there next to you. And now look how much distance there is between us. What's happened to us? He said, honey, the steering wheel hadn't moved. Sometimes we think about that with God, don't we? I'm just so far away from God. God's just so far away from me. God never moved. It's us. How's our proximity? Because if I'm not close to God tonight, it's my fault, not his. And then Andy, where are you regarding my provision for you? Are you using the things that I've given you for my glory or using them for your own? See, here's the so what. It is always a good idea to take an honest, objective look as best we can at ourselves to see where we are in relation to God. But here's what we tend to do. We tend to measure where we are in relation to the world. Well, I'm this far from the world, so I'm okay. Problem is, the world is steady moving away from God. And if you maintain that distance from the world, you're where the world was 30 years ago. The measure is not where we are relative to the world. The measure is where we are relative to God. The world should be more and more distant to us now than it's ever been. And so it's a good thing for us to ask ourselves that question. Where are you?